Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It's 9.26 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. It's the 21st of April, 2023, and this is episode 710 of Bitcoin, and I'm number one again. I am. I did it again. Actually, I didn't do shit. Y'all did that, and I will say that every single time, because it's not me that's putting me at the very top of the fountain charts. It's you. You did that. I didn't do anything. Except to actually, you know, just build the show and keep doing it day after day after day as long as I possibly can. But that's where my job ends. That, uh, that's the only thing that I can do. And yet, I asked, you guys came out of the woodwork and got me back in, not only to the top 10, but the number one slot on Fountain Charts. Now, uh, let's be very clear. And let's be very honest. I am at the top of a single chart that is podcasting 2.0 centric. It has nothing to do with the rest of the podcast out there. It, I mean, honestly, the listenership of everybody in the top 10, okay, let's, let's add up all the listenership of numbers 2 through 10 in the fountain charts. If you add up all the listenership, I am a bug on the windshield of a Mack truck driving down the interstate. That, I mean, honestly, that's just the way it really is. Charts actually mean, they don't mean as much as we think that they mean, but it doesn't matter because when I see the emblem of the Bitcoin and podcast right next to my favorite podcast in the space. The podcast that, you know, got me to get off my ass and do something myself. Well, that's worth, a, that's worth, that's a wealth that I can't describe. I can't put it in a bank and I can't take a loan out against it and I can't buy a house with it. It's a different kind of wealth altogether. And I've said on, on, on so many times on this show, what do you classify as wealth? In what way do you consider yourself wealthy? What would have to happen for you to become wealthy? And more and more people are looking at just sheer cash in the bank and saying, whether it's because of inflation, whether it's because it's all part of the clown show, it doesn't really matter. They're looking at it and saying, this really doesn't represent wealth anymore. There's something more to the human spirit. There's something more to the human condition. There's something more. And this to me, being number one in the fountain charts, is a wealth that I cannot put a price on. 
I, like I said, I can't trade it. I can't buy food with it. I can't, I can't do anything with it yet. I consider it a pot of gold. And it's very odd when you start thinking that way because you're like, yeah, well, that number one spot, pal, eh, you're still going to starve to death. <laughs> and that's a, I don't think I'm going to starve to death, but I'm just saying, you know, I don't try to let, you know, I, I don't let these things go to my head because that, that is of no value. And if it doesn't have any value, I don't want to have anything to do with it, which is one of the reasons why I'm just trying to figure out any way that I can to detach myself from the clown show because it has absolutely no intrinsic value to me. I, I was brought up to believe that it did by people that meant well, my parents, grandparents, all that. They meant well. They thought there was intrinsic value in all the bullshit that we see, but there never was. And watching as a, th as you know, if I'm just looking at the, my generation of my family and my father and my father's father, talking three generations of the Bennett family, and I'm looking at all of us going, dude, three generations got duped. And I guarantee you it was more than that. It was four, five, who knows, who knows? But at least three generations of the Bennett family were lied to and we bought it. And I'm just never going to be able to forgive myself for that. But I can forgive, I can forgive a lot. <clears throat> so maybe, maybe Texas will do me proud, even though that I'm not a resident in Texas any longer. David Atlee brings it to you from Cointelegraph. Proof of reserves bill passes the Texas House of Representatives. Uh, okay, I, let's see what this is about. The Texas House of Representatives approved a bill. It's a bill. They just approved the It's just at the House, okay? Let's not get ahead of ourselves. It's got to go to the governor, and I don't know if it's gone to the Senate yet, okay? But it's got to pass bicamerally, and then it's got to be passed or signed by the governor of the state for this shit to work. So we're just at the bill stage. Texas House of Representatives approved a bill that would require crypto exchanges to maintain reserves in an amount sufficient to fulfill all obligations to customers. And they did that on April the 20th. 420! Should the bill pass the Senate? Ah, it's not in the Senate yet. Should the bill pass the Senate and receive the governor's signature, it would become law by September the 1st. The bill introduces amendments to the Texan Finance Code, namely Section 160. Under the amendments, digital asset providers that serve more than 500 customers in the state of Texas and have at least $10 million of customer funds would be restricted from commingling the customer funds with any other type of operational capital and using customer funds for any other transactions beside the, besides the original transaction demanded by said customer. In addition, the provider would have to hold reserves in an amount enough to immediately lit all the possible withdrawals. It should also create a plan to allow auditors to review the information made available to the customer. By the 90th day after the end of each fiscal year, an exchange will need to file a report about its outstanding liabilities to customers with the state banking department. The report should also include an attestation by the auditor. If the provider, fails to comply with the requirements, the banking department would have the right to revoke its license. 
In the aftermath of 2022's market failures, Texas took a cautious approach towards crypto. On April the 12th, the state Senate approved a bill aimed at removing uh, MOS incentives for local crypto miners. I don't know. I think that might very well be a misspelling. Let me see here. Uh, MOS incentives. That's weird. Bill limiting incentives for crypto miners passes Texas Senate moves to house. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> maybe they were trying to say most incentives. Um, and they're talking, I'm pretty sure they're talking about that. Uh, not being able to, uh, to get incentives out of ERCOT for balancing the grid, which was the dumbest move I've ever seen in my entire life. But be that as it may, what do you think about this? Because generally speaking, we always rail when it comes to regulations. Are all, is it, is it the case that every single regulation is bad? And I'm kind of a, of the mind that they are, but there's a caveat there, right? The way this is written, this seems sensible, right? Sensible legislation, sensible regulation. It's sensible. You should have, you should be able to make all of your creditors whole when they come knocking at your door and say, I need to withdraw my money. You should be able to do that, right? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is good and wholesome and is probably even halal. I don't know. But in either event, it's sensible, right? What bugs me about any regulations is its possibility to be corrupted through game theory. What does the regulation allow that we can't see. See, this is this is what I've been learning when it comes to game theory as far as Bitcoin is concerned. Just look at the whole ordinals and inscriptions thing, all right? Now, think of that as a regulation, right? Maybe the people, you know, I can't remember his name as a, not Kassarin, he's doing Domus, um, whatever that dude's name is. Whoever the guy that started the whole ordinals inscriptions thing on, on whatever his name is, that's who I'm talking about. Maybe he and anybody he was talking to thought that this was a sensible thing to do. Well, what happened? Well, it broke for one. <laughs> it broke last week. Nobody knows the order. No, nobody knows the correct ordering of the ordinals and 1200 of them got skipped altogether. Nobody knows what to do. They're trying to figure out a way. Should they just bl blow all the ordinals away and redo the whole thing? Or should they try to fit the missed, you know, ordinals back in, in some weird way? That's sort of what, how I view regulations. So let's just pretend for a 10th of a second that ordinals was a sensible thing to do. And within ordinals structure itself, it caused it to break, right? It, there was some, there's a bug, right? Is there a bug in this regulation about what Texas is trying to do at this point? Probably. Will it cause it to break? I don't think so, but that doesn't mean that somebody else can't look at it and say, okay, Here's the structure of the bill, and let's say it goes to the Senate and it gets signed by Governor Abbott and it's law as of September the 1st of this year. And somebody looks at it and, and reads the bill hardcore and figures out a way to get around it or figures out a way to do something with it that the bill or the law never intended to be done. 
not because it knew that it would be done and it was trying to forbade it. It just didn't know that a thing could be done. See, this is the great thing about humans and game theory. You think you're going to do something and you think it's going to safeguard something, but it doesn't. And that's one of the reasons why I just, ah, I like the spirit in which the bill, this particular one is written. I like what they're trying to do. Were they competent enough to shut down almost all avenues of potential game theory that could make it be useful for something nefarious? That I don't know, and neither does anybody else. We'll have to actually wait to see if somebody comes up with something. Uh, Bitcoin Magazine, BTC Casey. Bitcoin Racing Team will put Bitcoin in front of millions of racing fans in the Porsche Carrera Cup. Oh, oh boy. Bitcoin Racing Team has entered Netflix star driver Sebastian Melrose in the Porsche Carrera Cup with the Richardson Racing Team winner of last year's event. The championship takes place over eight weekends across the United Kingdom and is broadcasted live on ITV. Melrose has previously achieved success in the Formula Ford 1600 and 2019 GT Racing Series and was runner-up in the Netflix TV series Too Hot to Handle. He expressed his excitement to be entering the Porsche Carrera Cup GB this season with Bitcoin Racing, and the team is looking forward to introducing Bitcoin to a new audience over the 2023 season. The Bitcoin Racing team aims to bring Bitcoin to a wider audience and is actively looking for additional Bitcoin-related sponsors. Charles McKenzie, the team's deputy principal, expressed confidence that with Melrose's skill and the professionalism of the Richardson Racing team, they could see a podium or two before the end of the season. McKenzie's father, Andrew McKenzie, is the team's principal and an accomplished racing driver himself. He and his son are avid Bitcoiners and sought to bring Bitcoin to a wider audience through racing. Jason Dean, a Bitcoin consultant who joined forces with the Bitcoin racing team last year, <coughs> expressed his excitement to be part of the team's mission to introduce Bitcoin to a whole new audience over the 2023 season. Quote, there has simply never been exposure of the Bitcoin logo on this scale via mainstream channels before, and we look forward to expanding on the conversations that it will inevitably start, Dean said. The Bitcoin racing team has seven cars over three championships with six drivers and is officially endorsed by El Salvador. <laughs> yeah. The team flies the flag of El Salvador on the roof of its cars in all championships. Now that's cool. I like that. I do. I can't, you know, I can't just not like this. However, I don't think it's, I don't think it's actually, eh, I don't think it's entirely truthful to say that never before has so many people seen the Bitcoin logo on racing. That's, that's not true. <laughs> that's, that's just not true. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, uh, there was, was it Formula One? Uh, in Miami, I don't know, there was a huge race and Bitcoin racing almost came in first and then something bad happened at the very, like on the last lap. And I don't know, I can't remember, but the whole point is, is that you had, you know, um, strike and Jack Mallers were out there. A whole bunch of Bitcoiners were out there at the race. Everybody was pumping that shit up. And honestly, a lot of people saw the Bitcoin emblem on whatever racing car there was. And that wasn't the only time that that was done. So, uh, yeah, 
let's let's be a little bit more honest with ourselves, shall we, ladies and gentlemen? Mining pools, specifically Bitcoin mining pools, will have less power with this upgrade. I, it's a bad, it's a bad, bad uh, title for an article. Okay, so let's get into this because it's Stratum V2, and this is a good thing for Bitcoin, right? Decrypts. Alyssa Hertig is writing it. Are Bitcoin mining pools too powerful? Do they make Bitcoin too centralized? Well, Stratum V2, an overhaul to Bitcoin mining, aims to make these questions moot. I love that word, moot, in the latest release of the open source version of the Stratum V2 protocol, Stratum Reference Implementation. Developers announced that they have completed job negotiation, an important feature for the wider Bitcoin industry because it gives mining pools less power over transaction selection. Mining is a key component that makes Bitcoin tick. Miners around the world reap Bitcoin rewards in exchange for the compute power that they use to secure the network. But even if anyone with the correct hardware is free to mine, miners will probably lose money if they go it alone. Miners generally sign up to what are known as mining pools to combine their resources and increase their chances of nabbing Bitcoin rewards. Since 2018, Bitcoin developers have been working on Stratum V2, which connects miners with mining pools in a more seamless fashion, making mining more efficient and secure. But job negotiation, which clicked into place with the most recent upgrade, is the most important part of that. Stratum V1, which SV2 or Stratum V2 is now replacing, has its issues. In pooled mining, the entire work is prone to censorship. Since mining pools are a single point of failure, otherwise known as a trusted third party, which are, as we all know, security holes. Pseudonymous Bitcoin program manager Pavlinex, who's been working with the SRI team, explained to Decrypt, quote, Regulators could force certain mining pools to not include certain transactions in a block, for example, end quote. This upgrade could stop that, at least once it's finally adopted by mining pools. Bitcoin's raison d'etre, I can't pronounce that, and I never have been able to, is to be a money that no one company or king can control, but centralization has a relentless tendency to sneak into the picture. Many Bitcoiners worry about mining pools as a centralizing force. As this chart shows, just two mining pools make up roughly 60% of the entire Bitcoin mining network. When mining pools use the Stratum V1 protocol, whoever controls the mining pool has the power to stop certain transactions. <clears throat> Governments could use mining pools as a choke point to stop transactions they dislike, for example. This isn't an imaginative fear. Mining pools have been known to censor transactions over the years, even advertising this fact to make regulators happy. But with SRI's most recent upgrade, the task of transaction selection is now given to individual miners instead, making mining pools less of a target. What that means is, instead of simply going straight to Foundry USA and telling them to block certain transactions, a government or other censoring entity would need to individually go to all of the hundreds of miners that compose Foundry's pool and make a, such a request to them. Quote, for the entire network, the ability for miners to select transactions means that power goes back from a handful of powerful entities back to thousands of individual miners 
Pavlinek said. But to be clear, SV2 hasn't been adopted by mining pools just yet. SRI is still under development. Pavlinex noted that they're seeking early adopters to test the software as it stands today. We'd like to invite miner, miners, pools, and firmware makers to help us test our latest update, providing feedback and directly influence the direction of our development, he said. <clears throat> Pavlinex thinks mining pools will be eager to adopt the new SV2 protocol not only for the efficiency gains, but because many of them don't want the responsibility of blocking transactions. Quote, pools are likely to adopt SV2 because they don't really want to be a central point of failure either. It's a big responsibility and our latest update helps them get rid of that pressure and risk. All right, so that's the end of the article. Now I brought you like news about this before, but it's good to Let's keep, we really should be keeping Stratum V2 top of mind when it comes to Bitcoin mining and the continued security of the network itself. And one of the things that's interesting about that I've, one of the things that I try to bring y'all is how is it that Bitcoin reflects what we see in the world? I talk about, sometimes I talk about gaming. A lot of times I talk about permaculture. A lot of times I talk about the natural things that we see in the universe and how is that reflected in bitcoin because as agents of the universe which you are and if you don't believe so just understand that the iron that is in the hemoglobin that is studded on all of your red blood cells that pick up oxygen from your lung and deliver it to all the cells in your body so that you don't die was forged in the heart of a sun it was that's the only way you're getting heavy elements in this universe, okay? At the beginning of the universe, you had, you know, protons. Actually, at the very beginning, you didn't even have that. But very shortly after the big boom or whatever the hell it is you want to say, you had the coalescence or the, the coagulation of subatomic particles that formed protons. And boom, you end up with hydrogen. First element. The first element in the, in the periodic table, also the first element that was actually an actual element in the universe. And then you get helium because you get two of these things fusing together. And there's a lot of energy at the start of the, of the universe. So there was enough energy to, you know, fuse these things together. You get helium and then you get the lighter elements. But after, and I can't remember which one it is, there's a, there's a limit. To how, to how many protons you can shove together with the energy at the start of the universe. And I, it's not very many of the elements. So all the rest of them, silver, gold, iron, titanium, blah, you, you name carbon, you, know, you name it, dude. You got to have an exploding star or the collision of two stellar things. It's just, you got to... You got to have this kind of energy to be able to fabricate anything else. What am I getting at? The universe acts because of gravity, which was one of the, one of the first four, what do we call them? One of the first four, we'll just call them laws. There's, there's four energetic laws of the universe. There's the elect, oh, forces. That's what I'm getting at. There's gravity, electromagnetic force, the uh, strong force, and the weak force. 
all that shit was created at the on the onset of the Big Bang. Gravity causes things to do what? Have a tendency to coalesce or in our case, centralize. You live in a fractal. <laughs> you live in a dream world, Neo. No, but you also live in a fractal. You also happen to be, you know, ticket holders to the greatest clown show in the world right now. But be that as it may, gravity causes things to coalesce. As agents of the universe ourselves, everything about how we think and what we do is guided by these four laws. And having this tendency to want to put things in a drawer, like I keep all my shirts in a shirt drawer and all my pants in a pant drawer, where do you think that that notion to do that comes from? It's much, much deeper than, I just want to make sure that all my shirts are in the same drawer. It comes from a deeper place than that. I guarantee it. Mining pools, no different. People wanting to put their Bitcoin with BlockFi or some, they don't want to hold the shit themselves because entropy is sort of, it's it, 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 chaos and nobody likes chaos. We want order. And the only way to get order is what? <clears throat> to coagulate shit together, keeping your shirts in a shirt drawer, keeping your pants in a pant drawer. Centralization occurs not because we think it's a good idea, not because it is a good idea, not because it's even an idea at all. It's part of the basic fabric of the universe. If you want to be the agent of change that dumps the clown show into the Boston tea, you know, Boston Harbor, like we did with all the tea, you have to be an agent of chaos and you have to divest yourself of the idea of centralization. And that is going to be the hardest thing anybody can do. Why? Because we're agents of the universe. And one of the first four first forces of the universe is what? Gravity, which does what? Centralizes shit. Think about that and we'll move on. United States, a first Bitcoin real estate marketplace launches through Coinbase integration. Oh boy. Okay. Bitcoin magazine. Who's writing it? None other than BTC Casey. My e-listing, a commercial real estate marketplace, is set to launch in the United... Uh, the, uh, oh, let me do that again. Oh, I got to do all that again. My e-listing, a commercial real estate marketplace, is set to launch the United States' first Bitcoin-enabled real estate marketplace through a Coinbase integration. The new platform allows buyers to purchase U.S. real estate properties with Bitcoin or cash. My e-listing CEO, Caleb Richter, stated that the program will drive innovation in the crypto and real estate industries. It sounds like you need to put a tie on that suit speak. The press release shared with Bitcoin Magazine claims that the program aims to bring new convenience, accessibility, and greater profitability to the market. Agents can now list U.S. commercial and residential properties to be sold for cryptocurrency or cash on the platform, and anyone worldwide can purchase them with one biz within one business day through the ASAP program. The transaction times are also expected to be nearly 50 times faster than current averages, according to the press release. The platform is initially launched for Texas-only properties on April the 20th, 2023, with plans to expand to other select states in June of 2023. 
The list of available properties to purchase with Bitcoin is available on the MyEListings website. The ASAP program's explainer video provides a step-by-step -step guide on how the process works. The integration of Coinbase by MyEListing is expected to change the way people invest in real estate by providing a secure and efficient way to buy and sell properties, the press release states. And as Richter explained, quote, with the ASAP program, anyone, regardless of the language that they speak or where they are in the world, can purchase residential and commercial real estate with crypto in as little as one business day. That's probably not going to make FinCEN very happy. The program's success will be determined in the coming months as it expands to other states and attracts more buyers and sellers. All right. <clears throat> this is a completely worthless program for me for two reasons. One, Coinbase is involved and honestly, fuck those guys. I can't stand that company. They've never been on Bitcoin's side. They never will be on Bitcoin's side. It's just a marketing scheme for them because they are part of the legacy financial system no matter what they tell you. Second, there's no loan here. Now, do I rail against using your Bitcoin and leveraging it, taking loans out against it? Yes, I do. But in a situation such as a mortgage, I would consider using my Bitcoin as collateral to securitize a purchase of a house not commercial real estate because let's let's be let's be honest with everybody and ourselves CRE is going is going uh, to burn down it's already burning down i listened to a uh, small section of a bitcoin spaces about commercial real estate the other day and it is the case that in california certain regional banks are selling performing loans with a 6% coupon at 20% discount just to get cash. Now you tell me if commercial real estate is going to be a a big thing. It's going to be a big thing, but it's not going to be a big money maker. Not on most people's side of the trade that's coming. But I would like to be able to say, "Hey, I got a Bitcoin over here. I want to secure it. I want to use it as as part of a security against a house so that I can buy a house." But that's not what this is. All this is, is a payment rail so that you can liquefy your Bitcoin into real estate. And whether or not you believe real estate is a shit coin, it does mean that you're actually disposing of Bitcoin that you hold and converting it into some kind of real estate. And I don't like that. I, I just, I just don't. You do you. And if this sounds good to you, you might want to go check out the My E-Listing and it's Basically, M-Y-E-L-I-S-T-I-N-G, my e-listing, all one word, probably.com. Let me check that out for you. Hold on, let's see if they've got a, nope, uh, nope, uh, yeah, it's my e-listing, all one word, dot com. So if you want, you know, go check it out, but, uh, you, you know, meh, that's all I got to say about it. And more meh coming up, Warren Buffett was wrong about a rat poison Bitcoin portfolio data shows. Yeshu Gola has this one for Cointelegraph. Legendary investor Warren Buffett sees no value in Bitcoin, infamously calling it rat poison squared. But, 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 but data shows that adding Bitcoin 
to a so-called, quote, rat poison portfolio, end quote, an equally weighted portfolio of Berkshire Hathaway, Microsoft, J.P. Morgan, and BlackRock stocks would have produced much better returns for the Oracle of Omaha. Since 2014, allocating only 2.5% Bitcoin yearly to the rat poison portfolio increases returns by 20% with reduced risks, according to independent market analyst Alpha Zeta. For now, the portfolio return stands at around 16%. Despite Bitcoin's notorious price volatility, Alpha Zeta noted that BTC's correlation with the stocks of Berkshire Hathaway, Microsoft, JP Morgan, and BlackRock is actually very low. For instance, during the 2021 to 2023 bear market, allocating Bitcoin to the rat poison portfolio could have negated losses by about 10%. In other words, BTC typically negates losses imposed by the downside movements in the said stocks. Therefore, allocating a small portion of Bitcoin to the rat poison portfolio has proven to be a reasonable hedging strategy to offset potential negative returns. Bitcoin's proponents have projected that it's an alternative to traditional safe haven assets like gold, given the scarcity that comes with its fixed 21 million BTC supply and increasing deflation over time. This has attracted many people to buy Bitcoin as a way of offsetting fiat debasement and excessive money printing of central banks around the world. For instance, the number of non-zero Bitcoin addresses has grown from around 2,500 in 2009 to over 45 million in 2023 per glass node. Nonetheless, Buffett believes Bitcoin recently said that Bitcoin is a gambling token, noting that it, quote, doesn't have any intrinsic value, but that doesn't stop people from wanting to play the roulette wheel, end quote. However, the veteran investor continues to have exposure in the broader crypto market to the broader crypto market through his popular investments, such as Nubank, which offers crypto-related services in Latin America. As of April the April 2023, uh, Bitcoin is down nearly 60% from its record high of 69,000 in November of 2021, but is up 100% so far. Since its market debut on January the 9th, 2019, uh, Bitcoin has outperformed Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio by over 320,000%. So what does that mean? Since its market debut on January the 9th, 2019, Bitcoin has outperformed Berkshire Hathaway's portfolio by over 320,000%. I guess market debut in January 9th, 2019, I think what they meant to say was January 9th, 2009, but I'm not sure. Maybe that's when they put Bitcoin in this particular rat poison portfolio. Maybe that was around the date that Berkshire or uh, Warren Buffett called it rat poison squared. I don't know. I don't give a shit. It doesn't matter. I got better fish to fry. And the name of that fish is Osage Orange. <laughs> you guys seem to enjoy uh, what uh, the little, the, 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 the departure from Bitcoin to talk about the black locust tree. Today, I bring you the Osage Orange tree. Now, this one I don't have direct experience with. I've been up close and personal to one. I know what they look like, but I haven't grown one. I've never had one on a piece of property that I own. 
So bear that in mind when I tell you all about Osage Orange. First, its Latin name is Maclura palmifera. Palm, think apple because it's kind of part of that whole family. And it can grow up to 30 to 50 feet tall. It grows at a reduced rate of, compared to black locust, one to two feet per year. It's native to the American Midwest. It's cold hardies, hardy from zones four to nine. And like black locust, it doesn't give a shit about soil. Basically, it kind of does the best in a neutral soil, pH six to pH seven. But the whole family is related to the mulberry tree. So if you've ever seen a mulberry, well, you know, then it's sort of the same thing, only different. Now, <clears throat> let's talk about its firewood potential. It doesn't have the same potential for firewood as black locust tree, but not because of BTU, simply because it grows at half the rate that black locust trees do. Black locust trees grow, you know, three to five feet per year. This one does one to two feet per year. So, you know, do the math. But Osage Orange, the wood, it has even more BTUs per pound than black locust tree still approaching about roughly half that of anthracite coal, but still more heat value than black locust tree. Now getting to its timber, again, we are talking about one of the most rot resistant trees on the face of the planet. Again, you can use it for fence posts and outdoor furniture, outdoor decking. It has an extremely low rate of expansion and contraction. It's a very, 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 very dense wood, all right? In fact, its density is, uh, it's, has caused over time this tree to be used for all kinds of neat stuff, like archery bows, like bow and arrow, the bow. Native Americans, they had a couple of choices of wood for their longbows. One is yew wood. Uh, Y-E-W, the yew tree. The other one is Osage Orange. So it makes, in fact, it makes really, really, really good longbows. It makes wonderful furniture, again, because of the whole expansion and contraction or the, the lack thereof, the fact that it's rot resistant and the fact that it's extremely hard and extremely dense, which also makes for very heavy furniture. And if you don't like having to move your friends around, you're not going to appreciate them having furniture made out of Osage Orange. But here's one of the problems with Osage Orange. Unlike, okay, unlike a black locust tree, it doesn't grow straight. It grows crooked, which means what? You're not getting very many long boards out of this thing. So you're doing good to make furniture out of it. Probably not the best choice for flooring, even though I said outdoor decking. Probably not the best choice simply because you're going to end up with a whole bunch of really short boards because this thing grows that crooked. Now, turning, it makes a, if you're turning wood, which means like putting it on a lathe or something, you know, like that kind of turning wood, it's great for because you get these, you know, you can get like nuggets of wood, make them into bowls, do whatever. It turns great and it makes really high quality musical instruments. Now, if you'll notice, <clears throat> we're talking about all things that are probably under, you know, three foot long. 
<laughs> two foot long. That's about as straight as you're going to get out of this wood. Um, the wood itself, like black locust tree, is gorgeous. It sands well. It works well. Even though it's extremely dense, woodworkers have said, and this is coming out of the research that I did yesterday, that even though that the wood is extraordinarily dense and so tough that you can't nail a nail into it, that it doesn't sharp or doesn't dull their woodworking tools like they think that it would. So ads and scrapers and stuff like that and planers, they don't dull. But again, the wood is so dense, you cannot nail it. You have to pre-drill it and use screws. That's how hard this wood is. Fruit, it's an Osage orange. Can you eat the fruit, David? Yeah, you can. I don't think you want to. Apparently, it tastes like bitter cucumbers and is really freaking nasty. I have not bit into one of these things, but their fruit about, they can get about as big as the size of holding a, like a big softball. These things are, these things are not small fruits. And horses don't, they're called, they're, this thing is also called a horse apple. It's another name for this tree. It's also called a hedge apple. There's all manner of names for this thing. But animals, they can eat them, but with caution, which means that you kind of want to make sure that they're actually going to be smart about it, which means they don't like them either. <laughs> it's not palatable, right? So if, if you got a, a retarded horse out there that just keeps eating horse apples all day long, you're going to want to make sure that that horse stays away from it because the horse doesn't have enough sense and it will kill them if they eat too much of it. Too much of it, how much is that? I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I have no direct intelligence about this tree. This is all from just research from like USDA and other sources that I use. Now, what can be done with the fruit? Well, it's been shown to repel insects such as spiders and cockroaches. And so what, what, how do you, how does that work? Well, there's essentially two ways that, that I know about one, you gather up a bunch of fruit, you let it macerate in water for a little while, or you just keep them out and let them kind of start rotting. And that takes a while. We're talking like weeks. These things are hard as a rock, but once they start softening up and then you can get them into a blender, then you just blend them with some water, strain off the juice, put, you know, make sure that there's no particles in the juice, put it in a spray bottle, and you can use it indoors or outdoors. It's non-toxic. It, it, apparently it works. Some people say that it doesn't make any difference. So do your own research on this. But many people, what I've read about, like many people that have these things, they didn't even do that. They just took one of these things and they put it under their bed. And it would scare, it, it would keep all the spiders and mites and bed bugs and all these other insects. They just didn't want to get around it because of certain compounds that are in the fruit. But the actual data on how, how much efficacy this thing has is it's in doubt. Okay. It, you got, like I said, you got to do your own research. Some people swear by it. Other people say it hasn't done anything for them. But one of the great things about this tree is that because it has a lower growth habit, you know, like I said, it doesn't get to 170 feet like a black locust tree's maximum height ever recorded. It's, you know, 
between 20 and 50 feet high. There's been one recorded episode or like two or three recorded episodes of somebody saying, you know, measured it and said, this is 50 feet high. You're literally looking at 20 feet, you know, like to the top of the crown, 20 feet. This makes a really good hedgerow or a windbreak. Generally speaking, you might as well just do both. And a hedgerow is really cool for these plants because why? And I forgot to mention this about black locust. It's thorny. You have to be careful with both of these trees. If you're going to be stupid and run around these trees like they're without a care in the world, uh, you're going to get hurt because the thorns on both of these things are pretty, can be pretty vicious. Now, on the trunks of the black locust trees that I was planting, I just took a pair of pliers and just pulled the uh, thorns off the side of them. And they never, once they're gone, they never grow back. And black locust trees eventually on the trunk would lose their thorns anyway. This one, the Osage orange, you got to be permanently careful with this. But because of the thorny branches, if you weave, if you plant these things close together in a row and you work with very, you work very carefully with the branches and you weave them together, you end up with a living fence that not even the heaviest of ruminants is going to want to mess with. So you don't have to fix fences. It's drought tolerant, so you don't really even have to water it. Think about that. How much fucking money do we spend on fencing in the United States? Especially if you are, if you're like out there in your homesteading and you're like, my God, how much is it going to cost me to, to build this fence? Well, why don't you consider lower time preference and planting a living fence that no cow or horse in their right mind wants to have anything to do with because of the thorns. And if you do it the right way, you have a beautiful hedge it acts as a fence. It corrals critters, well, of, of a certain size. I'm sure a marmot or whatever would be able to get through it, but in that nobody nobody's harvesting marmots. <clears throat> Just saying, think about that. And what else would a hedgerow do? What do you think it does? You got a 20-foot hedgerow that's 10 foot wide. What is that going to provide? A place for birds to nest. Lots and lots of birds. If you've got fly strike on your cows, how many trees do you have in your surrounding area that would harbor enough birds that would want to come get these flies? If you're out in the middle of Kansas, there's no trees. They cut them all down Just because people needed to farm their fucking corn fence row to fence row. My God. And if trees were in the way, they cut them down. And then people bitch about how much insect damage is being done. Is there a bird in the sky in the middle of Kansas? Rarely. Why? There's no trees. They all got cut down. And if you can't provide the, the habitat for a bird, they're not going to nest and raise their little bird families. And they're not going to need food, which means they're not going to go out and hunt. They're going to be in the cities where we don't need some kind of relief for livestock in the field from fly strike. Because flies are everywhere. They don't need habitat, right? They just, they're flies. Anything that eats flies, not in Kansas, not in Nebraska, if you go look at pictures of the farmland out there, there's hardly any trees. And the trees that are there are so far away from the middle of your cornfield 
that there's not going to be a bird over there trying to get insects. All right. They're not going to help with insect control. You plant a shit ton of hedgerows. Oh, well, now all of a sudden you've got a habitat for hundreds of thousands of birds and they're all looking for what? Food. High fat, high protein. Where do you get that? It ain't just earthworms. They're going to go look for any insect that is, is even remotely palatable. So that providing this habitat allows you to do insect control at a scale that only dumping thousands of gallons of pesticides per acre. Well, not thousands of gallons. Let's, just dumping liquid pesticide on acres and acres, like a thousand acres. It's going to cost you a lot too. But if that whole field is surrounded by hedgerow, uh, you're not going to have the kind of insect problems. Just, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. And again, this thing is, this whole tree, this Osage orange is drought and flood tolerant. What could be better? Not only is it drought tolerant, it can take flooding. All right. It's dense canopy is even way denser. Okay. It's way denser canopy. So it throws a hell of a lot more shade than the black locust tree. Right. So this is not something that you want next to your vegetable garden on the west hand side, but you do want it on the west hand side of any habitable structures or workshops or anything that you're going to be in that gets hot during the last part of the day. Put these sons of bitches on that side and it will completely shield from the sun. Like it's got its canopy is like 95% sun blocking. It's deep, deep, deep shade, which also means that anything growing underneath it is going to be shaded out, right? So a certain, if you're using it as hedgerows, certain amount of maintenance is going to be, have to be performed if you don't want it to spread in width or you, and, or you don't want it to spread above, I don't know, like let's say 10 feet. You don't want it any higher than that. Well, good luck, Joe. You're going to have to actually get out there and do shit about it. But it grows by itself. It maintains itself. And the birds that nest in it, guess what else they do? They poop. And as they poop, that fertilizer that's high in phosphorus gets incorporated in the soil by all the soil critters that are going to be living in there. And the hedge self-fertilizes. Dude, how many problems can you solve all at once with this? But it all begins with what? Low time preference. Let's run the numbers. All righty, daddy. Got CNBC futures and commodities. Got West Texas Intermediate up a quarter of a point. But it's still chilling out low, $77.54. Brent North Sea up a quarter of a point to $81.28 a barrel. Natural gas is the only one that's going down, but only by a little over a full point. It's still hanging at $2.22 per thousand. Gasoline, however, three quarters of a point rise to $2.60 a gallon. Gold is down a point and a half back. Oh, God, Peter Schiff is pissed. It's back below 2000 to 1989. That was actually one of my favorite years, honestly. Silver is down 1.27% to $25.05. Platinum is up 2.87. Copper's down over a point. And palladium is up just over a point. 
Oh, nice. And we've got ag, which is mixed. Biggest loser today is corn, two, a little over two points to the downside. Biggest winner is rice, almost two points to the upside. I got live cattle down 0.05%, lean hogs up over a point, and feeder cattle up 0.17%. Dow is up. Everything's moving sideways in equities today. I guess we're waiting on news. I don't know. But the Dow is sideways, the S&P is sideways, NASDAQ is up 0.1%, and the S&P mini is the only one with something sizable. It's down a quarter of a point. Bitcoin's down to $28,025, according to bitinfocharts.com. 386,000 BTC sent around the horn in the last 24 hours with a 1.13 BTC average transaction value. Median transaction value 0.015 BTC or about 415 bucks. Block times are high, actually extraordinarily high. Uh, 10 minutes and 50 seconds, so almost a full minute above target. We have 0.18 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis and 25 BTC taken overall in the last 24 hour period. We've got a 10% drop in hash rate and BitInfo charts tells us that we're down to 308 exahashes per second. I told you every time the difficulty change happens, at least when it goes up the day after or the, the block right after, it's like people just shut their machines right the hell off, whatever. Have fun staying poor. Dogecoin, 8.3 United States pennies. So the rest of the uh, shitcoin field is also not doing well either. Clark Moody's dashboard, $540.5 billion of market capitalization is just over 4% of gold's entire market cap. And we may now only purchase 14 ounces of shiny metal rocks with our one Bitcoin, of which there is 19,352,330.71 of and 5,382.96 of them are in the Lightning Network valued at $150.3 million, being run over 74,256 payment channels and 66.4 of all Lightning is being run over Tor. Uh, We have a projected estimated difficulty change to decrease by 10.6%. May the 4th be with you, 2023. Mempools, let's see what's going on over here. I heard tell that we've cleared the, the, the mempools a couple of times during the night. We are back up to 20 blocks uh, with holding uh, 33,861 transactions and we're waiting, that, uh, waiting for all that shit to clear. Meanwhile, if you wanna get in on the action, four Satoshis per V-byte gets you in at low priority. If you want in on the next block, six Satoshis per V-byte or roughly around a quarter of a buck US for a next block transaction. Uh, Yeah, that's the weather report. Welcome to part two of the snooze that you can use. Let's start with Boostagrams from uh, episode 708. Pitar seems to be the guy that sent me over the top with, get this, 333,333 Satoshis. That's a lot of Satoshis, Pitar. I don't really know what to say. Thank you. I should be able to say more than that. Well, I will. I'll read your your boostagram. It says, love the tree talk. Go tree casting. 
<laughs> tree casting. I am already in love with that. I might actually have to use that as hashtags on Nostra moving forward. Henry GQJ, I believe is what we're saying. And it's 10,000 Satoshis. Thank you, bro. Says good advice on the planting. You can also inoculate biochar in trees using indigenous microorganism collections. Look up Chris Trump. And in my opinion on YouTube, wait, hold on. Let's, oh, no, not in my opinion. He said IMO. That's in, I think that's indigenous microbiology, something. I think it's a Korean technique, but look up Chris Trump and IMO on YouTube. It's easy to do. And the results have been phenomenal, even curing supposedly incurable plant diseases. That doesn't surprise me one single bit, Henry. Also, I started Nost Trees on Noster. Oh, dude, I would love it if people joined in. The idea is to show and tag all the trees Nostriches are planting in the real world so we can show the next Greenpeace USA our proof of work. Henry, that is freaking fan-fucking-tabulous. Okay, so the hashtag is Nostries, N-O-S-T-R-E-E-S. Nostries on Noster. What I, if if you guys are going to do that, and I hope you do take part of Nostries, make sure to tag it with Grow Noster as well. Okay, so that the people that are not interested in Bitcoin content, uh, that's where the the whole Grow Noster initiative was started by Jack Spirico out of the uh, the survival podcast and Bitcoin breakout podcast. He's, he does both of them. He started the grow Noster initiative and it's working very, very well to get non Bitcoin content out there so that as new people come into Noster because they're fleeing dead bird site <clears throat> and they don't give a shit about Bitcoin, they have something else to grab onto. I think hashtag Nost trees would be a great component of that. So when you do take a picture of the tree that you're planting, hashtag it Nost trees and then grow Noster. And that way the Nost trees tag will be circulated through the grow Noster community and they might actually pick it up themselves and help to grow the whole damn thing. Uh, Yegro, I don't know if that's how I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Y-E-G-H-R-O. Yegro is about the best I can do, says, with Aboob Boo, says, love the show. Would love for you and any of your audience to join my Noster Relay, www.yeghro.site. Keep up the great work. Much love, Pura Vida. Uh, Pura Vida, back to you, pal. Coin Laughs, my good friend. I haven't heard from him in a while. 6,680 Satoshis says 668, the, na- the neighbor of the beast. Rock on, David. <laughs> the neighbor of the beast. I love that one. <clears throat> M. Cott <clears throat> with 4,411 sats says, nice show. Love the commodity prices coverage. The overlap between Bitcoin and homesteading is important ground to occupy. I believe Bitcoiners in the United States need to start thinking about where they will retreat to when times get tough. Wyoming, Tennessee, Texas, Florida, top that list currently. In the meantime, homesteading where you are and cultivating important skills like gardening, construction, and physical strength will benefit you and your family during rough patches. Absolutely right, bro. Absolutely right. Now, let's do this one. 
It took me freaking forever to get this out of Cointelegraph. It's written by Joe Hall, but I don't know. I'm able to hit all the other websites I normally do easily, but last two days in a row, Cointelegraph has been just a bitch. So much today, I literally had to copy the URL from one of the sto- from this story and drop it into archive.ph so that maybe they'd be able to get it. And of course they did. And so here's the article entitled, Bitcoin Lightning Network is 1,000 times cheaper than Visa and MasterCard, according to data. Fresh data from Glassnode demonstrates that Bitcoin's Lightning Network is significantly cheaper to use than legacy payment networks. The median fee rate or the cost of spending Sorry, the median fee rate or the cost of sending value across the Lightning Network is 0.0029%, 1,000 times cheaper than that of the MasterCard or Visa payment processors. James Check, lead analyst at Glassnode, told Cointelegraph that the median fee rate or the fee charged by, per 1 BTC sent across the Lightning Network is currently 3,000 Satoshis. That is equivalent to 84 cents to send $28,800 worth of value, which is a fee of 0.0029%. Pretty remarkable when you think about it. In a post on the Noster social media net protocol, thank you. Thank you. Fucking A. Thank you, Cointelegraph. Thank you. We need to move away from putting up people's tweets. Start putting up notes from Noster in your publications. For the love of God, starve the bird. We must starve the bird. In a post on the Noster social media protocol, Bitcoin analyst Dylan LeClaire noted that this rate is many times less than that charged by major credit card companies. And Dylan LeClaire's note on Noster says, the median fee rate for transfers over the Lightning Network is anywhere from 60,000% to 140,000% more efficient than what is currently being charged by legacy credit card processors. 0.003% median fee rate compared to 1.5% to 3.5%. The Lightning Network, a layer two payment solution built atop the world's largest cryptocurrency, was first proposed as a way to make Bitcoin effective as a payment method. These data points demonstrate that not only is it fast, but low cost, with the mean fee rate being steadily trending towards, uh, trending lower since November of 2021. Legacy payment networks such as Visa and MasterCard charge merchants a fee of around 2 to 3% per transaction, making them an expensive option for businesses. In an upcoming Cointelegraph documentary shot in Cape Verde, the business owner of one of the few businesses to accept Bitcoin that accepting foreign Visa and MasterCard transactions cost over 8%. My God, moreover, Glassnode's check refer to users who run their own nodes and manage their own channels. Many Lightning users take advantage of custodial wallets, such as Wallet of Satoshi and Albi, to make micropayments on social media apps such as Noster. Thank you again, Cointelegraph. Some Bitcoin early adopters have noted the growing preference for custodial solutions, as the Bitcoiner mantra is not your keys, not your coin. Although semi-custodial solutions such as Fetty and Cashew could undermine reliance on fully custodial solutions. Furthermore, the throughput of the Lightning Network could be called into question. 
Check explained, quote, Of course, we must also consider that the typical channel is smaller than 1 BTC. The median channel size is 0.02 BTC, and the mean size is 0.08 BTC. So overall, the Lightning Network remains well-suited to payments below $1,000, end quote. In the below graph, the channel size is trending higher, but still well under $10,000. In such an environment, payments over $1,000 may be better suited to the Bitcoin-based chain in order to avoid payment failure or misfire. And that's the end of the article. So better than Visa and MasterCard. Well, it sure is. But when they say that, uh, what was it? Oh, good Lord. That it was expensive uh, for you know, shop owners or vendors. It's not because I guarantee you they, in their pricing of the goods and items or services they offer, that visa transaction is priced in. You're paying the visa transaction, right? Not the vendor. The vendors who still, for whatever reason, haven't priced their usage of Visa and MasterCard networks into their goods and services are probably going to go out of business because let's be let's be clear, two to three percent may very well be the last of whatever margin you've got as a vendor, especially in today's age. So use Bitcoin and use the the Lightning Network uh, and get rid of all that shit. <clears throat> the the whole notion of sending over a thousand dollars on on Lightning. What I find interesting is as the lightning channels trend to higher capacities, it seems to me that there's going to be a metric, that, like a, a ratio metric metric that comes into play. Maybe it'll be called a safe to send on lightning metric where it's like, okay, well, what's the average channel size versus what's the fees on Bitcoin main chain? And then that's a ratio. And when that ratio hits like, I don't know, below one, then anything over a thousand or like 10, let's say, let's call it $10,000 is safe to send on, on Lightning. And if it's over one, it's not good to send on Lightning. I, I think that that will actually happen. So yeah, now, Bitcoin Magazine, again, BTC Casey, again. Bitcoin Magazine launches book publishing branch with two, count the one, two new books. Bitcoin Magazine has announced the launch of its new book publishing branch, Bitcoin Magazine Books. The venture aims to provide readers with educational literature on Bitcoin, its impact on global economies, and its role in shaping the world's financial future. As the adoption of Bitcoin increases, the need for accurate and informative resources become crucial in understanding the complex topics surrounding Bitcoin and navigating the rapidly evolving landscape. The launch of Bitcoin Magazine Books is marked by the release of two new publications, Hidden Repression by Alex Gladstein and A Progressive's Case for Bitcoin by C. Jason Mayer. These publications are not just for Bitcoin enthusiasts, but for anyone interested in global economic and political developments. Hidden Repression by Alex Gladstein addresses how the world's monetary system exploits the weak and how citizens in the global South are turning to Bitcoin as a way out. Gladstein states, quote, I'm delighted to be working with Bitcoin Magazine to publish Hidden Repression, which seeks to illuminate 
the true nature of the world financial system and how, at its core, it remains a mechanism of the powerful stealing from the weak. A progressive's case for Bitcoin by C. Jason Mayer presents a well-researched and thoughtful case for the value of Bitcoin grounded in fact and avoiding sensationalism and hype. Mayer hopes to combat some of the misinformation that people often hear about this new technology, stating, quote, Bitcoin is our best chance to make the world more just, equitable, and peaceful, and it is critically important that more people fully understand it, end quote. Both books are available for purchase from Bitcoin Magazine Store for $29.99, and they will also be available for purchase at the upcoming Bitcoin 2023 conference in Miami from May the 18th through May the 20th. The authors will be present at the conference general admission days where they can sign the books at the book signing booth. Bitcoin Magazine Books aims to publish high quality books that offer readers valuable insights into Bitcoin's role in shaping the world's economic future. With the launch of these two new publications, Bitcoin Magazine Books is off to a strong start and readers can look forward to more exciting books in the future. All right, well, you know, Bitcoin Magazine is done, pissed us off with Ordinals, and I think they got their uh, ass handed to them considering that Ordinals are now broken. Uh, but be that as it may, you can be mad at them all they want. Eh, at least we got Bitcoin books, all right? Because as far as I know, this would be the first actual book publisher of Bitcoin only material. I wholeheartedly pray to God that they keep it Bitcoin only. It seems that their Bitcoin magazine is pressing up against that envelope. I wish they wouldn't. I really just don't want to be having to stand on somebody every day about stop shit coining. I mean, the shitcoiners can go do what they want, but when Bitcoiners start looking at shitcoins, it makes me a little ill. And honestly, I, I don't want to be ill. I want to be in a good mood and I want to be in a good mood all the damn time. <clears throat> Maybe this will help. Bitcoin is an unstoppable get Man, getting towards the end of the show. Give me a break. Bitcoin is an unstoppable, nonviolent resistance movement. Bitcoinnews.com, Mathan Burton is writing it. There is a new global civil rights movement that aims to protect the sovereignty of all human beings. The philosophical ideology of nonviolent resistance was utilized by Martin Luther King to pass the Civil Rights Act of, of 1964. Nonviolent resistance became a socio-political trend afterward. Civil rights leaders all over the nation peacefully boycotted and marched all over America to countervail the control authority of a flawed justice system. From 1966 to 1999, nonviolent civic resistance played a critical role in 50 or 67 transitions from authoritarianism. In 50 of 67 transitions from authoritarianism. Okay, well, I'm not exactly sure exactly what they're talking about, but we'll move on. Bitcoin is an asset that utilizes nonviolent resistance by protecting a monetary network through electric power projection. Instead of demonstrating sit-ins to expose the absurdity of 20th century Jim Crow laws, Bitcoin uses a proof-of-work consensus mechanism to protect a trillion-dollar monetary network 
without projecting kinetic power, simultaneously exposing the absurdity of 20th century monetary policy, which is now in the 21st century. Since the beginning of recorded history, the winners of large-scale violent, violent periods in history, you know, war, usually resulted in economic spoils and technological breakthroughs. There is a monetary and social incentive, however amoral it is, to conduct said war operations. However, war is a horrible reason to incentivize technological advancement. Why should humans have to kill other humans on a mass scale before new technologies are created and utilized. Bitcoin offers the world a much more attractive incentive to build on top of technological advancements. Bitcoin adoption has the potential to bring large-scale violence to an end and may one day be considered the most efficient form of nonviolent resistance. Jason P. Lowry. It's not that I don't like him, it's just that he was so successful in marketing himself, and it makes me feel embarrassed that I can't do the same, but whatever. J- Jason P. Lowry has held the controversial contention that kinetic violent energy was the only way to countervail the attack of an oppressor until the creation of Bitcoin. However, Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders in the 20th century utilized nonviolent demonstrations to countervail control authority of an oppressor and amend laws. In regards to the civil rights movement, attorney Richard Cohen points out that, quote, the violence was being perpetrated by the oppressors, not the oppressed. And that was an incredibly powerful message and incredibly an important tool during that movement. End quote. Although we are fortunate to live in a country that has an abundance of energy and resources, it is obvious that the United States government has been the oppressor when it comes to the overall strategy of monetary policy. By establishing a monopoly on violence, our government has been able to exploit American citizens through taxation and inflation, among many other flawed forms of monetary policy. Jamila Rakib, executive director of the Albert Einstein Institute, contends that, quote, nonviolent resistance works by destroying an opponent, not physically, but by identifying the institutions that an opponent needs to survive and then denying them those sources of power, end quote. Satoshi Nakamoto understood that the government needs banks to control the monetary infrastructure. Bitcoin defies government protocols by taking the power out of the bank's hands and allows self-sovereignty for all those who subscribe to the network. Bitcoin is a new iteration of nonviolent resistance. Nonviolent resistance is just another clever form of power projection. The multi-dimensional characteristic of Bitcoin is what makes it so unique and special. A nonviolent resistance resist uh, sorry a nonviolent resistant protocol has been able to put the power back into the hands of the people it represents which further indicates the nonviolent resistance is in fact a valid protocol for positive change and innovation well there's not much that i disagree with here i mean it just sometimes we get into wishful thinking just just how bit hell bent are the people that we talk about all the time uh IMF, WEF, UN, that, you know, that kind of shit. Just how willing are they to engage in violence? They're very willing to engage in physical violence. Let's be very clear. There is nothing honorable about any of the institutions that I just mentioned, plus a, plus a whole host of more, many, many more are more than ready 
to commit physical violence against its own sets of citizenry to milk them to death. Because we no longer represent humanity to them. We're chattel. That's it. We're chattel. We're, we're farmable. We're milkable. We're harvestable. Whether we grow in a field or walk around and fertilize like a ruminant, it doesn't matter. We're all headed to one sort of slaughterhouse or another. The only difference here is that a good rancher only raises a cow or some ruminant up between a year and two years old. If it's fully grass-fed, it's at least two years old. If it, and When I mean fully grass-fed, I mean grass-fed, grass-finished, no grain. You can you fin, grain finish uh, some cattle, you can get that shit done in a year, right? If you grass finish it, it's two years. But they're not going to keep those guys around longer than that. At least the rancher is honest about their projection of physical violence, which is to kill the cow, butcher it for all of its meat, and anything else that they can get off of it, right? They don't keep it around. The only thing that's kept around for years and years and years is dairy cattle because they constantly produce milk. And if you kill it, it won't produce milk anymore. So that type of ruminant is definitely kept around. But meat cows, lambs for meat, protein producing animals, you don't keep them around for as long as the United States government keeps us around. So we are, in fact, dairy cattle. I'm just saying, man, it's, it's sad that our governments think about us this way. And it's sad that we always have to be at odds with the people that we actually spend time going out and voting for. I mean, I spent, I used to spend my time waiting in line at a building so that I could go push a button because I somehow or another gave a shit. It means I gave them my energy and what have they given me? Nothing but pain and suffering. It's, it's the biggest marketing scam on the planet. I'm not suggesting don't go vote. I'm not suggesting go vote. You do whatever it is you want. I'm done. I ain't voting again. Oh, well, you don't have any right to bitch then. Yeah, I do. When you motherfuckers stop taking money from me in the form of inflation and taxation, and I'm not voting, then you can bitch at me for not being able, for not being able to bitch. But until the day that I stopped, stopped getting a tax bill on the day that inflation ceases, at least ceases and see and stays that way. At that point, I will call you on the phone and I will apologize for not voting. But when you don't vote, you have every right to bitch because they are stealing your property that means they're stealing your time upon this planet and they're making it worse and worse and worse. Last up, Rich Dad, Poor Dad author explains why he loves Bitcoin. Robert Kiyosaki, an accomplished American investor, businessman, motivational speaker, and author of the best-selling book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, recently expressed his admiration for Bitcoin and lauded its ability to withstand the test of time. By the way, this is written by Mandy Williams out of Crypto Potato. So here's why Kiyosaki loves Bitcoin. In a Friday tweet, Kiyosaki, Kiyosaki 
Kiyosaki, said he watched BTC climb to 20,000 and lost all almost all of its value when it dropped below 4,000 several years ago. The author noted that he purchased more of the asset when it climbed to 6,000. As a strong advocate for financial education, Kiyosaki emphasized the importance of understanding the potential of Bitcoin and its role in the future of finance. The investor sees BTC gold and silver through the same lens and keeps encouraging people to acquire more in preparation for an impending market crash on the United States dollar. As Crypto Potato recently reported, Kiyosaki intends to increase his exposure to the digital asset and, and precious metals because the Fed, U.S. Treasury, and President Joe Biden are liars. It is noteworthy that Kiyosaki believes Bitcoin is the only worthwhile investment within the cryptocurrency space as it is acknowledged as a commodity, unlike most shit coins considered as securities. He insists that once United States regulators, such as the Securities and Exchange Commission, classify them as securities, the watchdogs will go hard on them. Meanwhile, the author sees BTC trading at $100,000 soon, TM. He predicted in February that by 2025, the leading cryptocurrency would be worth $500,000, while gold and silver would trade at $5,000 and $500, respectively. Now, well, you know, I mean, it's Robert Kiyosaki. Let's, let's be honest, all right? I like Robert. I've read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. But honestly, it, <laughs> that book is just a retelling of several books that have been around for centuries. Well, centuries, not centuries, but decades, Okay. Richest Man in Babylon is one that I talk about. And, uh, God, what's the other one? Hold on for a second. I got to pause. Here it is. Here's the one that I was thinking of. A book called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Now, I bought this book as like, I don't know, Kindle or something like that. And I read it and I was like, I've heard all this shit before. And it's because I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad first. That was one of the one of the first economic self-help books that I've read. And I'm not rich. It didn't work. <laughs> rich Robert Kiyosaki failed me. I was expecting somewhere in that book to be the key to making a shit ton of money really fast. And there no such thing exists. But Robert Kiyosaki has done basically the same thing that Napoleon Hill did. He looked for a book as well when he wrote his book called Think and Grow Rich. Most of all this stuff comes out of the richest man in Babylon. I'm not kidding. I talk about this book all the time. Dude, this thing is at, this thing is like in its, I don't know, it was written in 1923 or something like that. I can't remember. It's a really old book, right? It's a hundred years old, something like that. I'm not getting a commission on y'all buying the richest man in Babylon. In fact, you can go to YouTube, and in their own search engine, you can type in audiobook Richest Man in Babylon, and you'll get the full four hours and 30 minutes of that book. I highly recommend that you listen to it. It's a good book because it does also not contain a get-rich-quick scheme. In fact, it's all about getting rich over the course of an entire lifetime. It also recognizes that you may not start doing that when you're 10 years old. Maybe you're 50. Maybe you're 40. Is it too late? No. Because why? T 
time is going to pass whether you do something or not. So you might as well do something because that time is going to pass no matter what you do. It's not that I don't like Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. In fact, I recommend that as a book as well. It's another person's take on the same type of thing that you get presented with in The Richest Man in Babylon. I also am not not recommending Rich Dad, Poor Dad. But essentially, what this reinforces for me is that all these ideas are the same. There are rules of money. Money contains its own rules, like the universe contains its own creation. Go back in history, you go back to the Big Bang. You get the four forces created. You get hydrogen. We already did all that. I talked about that at the front of the show. It contains its own creation. Money itself contains its own rules, its own forces of creation. And that's lined out in these books. But nowhere in any of these books is how to do it fast. In fact, rule number five of money is to not walk, but run away from anything that promises you usurious returns. That means a high percentage of return. All you're going to do is you're going to be like poor dad, poor dad. You're going to get into altcoins. You're going to get into shit coins. You're going to get into DeFi. You're going to get into yield harvesting. You're going to get into sushi swap and you're going to lose your money because you're chasing usurious returns. You're directly going against rule number five. If you want to know the effect of going against the rules of money, then walk up a 70-story building, stand on the ledge, and jump off and see what happens when you try to break the law of gravity. Splat. Happens every time. There's a reason these rules were written 8,000 years ago. Right? And it's not like they were carved in stone. This is like part of a whole history of a whole people that no longer exists, but somehow... Lots of stuff that the Babylonians did are still with us, like writing words down on something to remember. Accounting. Rules of money. The fifth rule being do not engage in anything promising usurious returns. This is the way that you build wealth. It's one of the five ways that you build wealth. Go read these books. I highly recommend either reading them or listening to them. You can also listen to Think and Grow Rich as read by Earl Nightingale. And Earl Nightingale had, he was a radio personality. He did the same thing that all these, that he was basically the Robert Kiyosaki of his time. He was a motivational speaker. He was a radio show host. He talked about growing wealth. He's, that it's like, it's like a genre Okay, but Earl Nightingale was one of the guys that did that in the 40s, 50s, 60s. I think he died in 1989. He had the best Midwestern radio accent ever. He is great to listen to. I love this guy's voice. He read Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich. And you can probably get that on YouTube too. So, and Earl, Earl Nightingale, by the way, He's got a lot, he read a lot of books on, and this is before, he's doing this shit in the 50s, okay? 
This is when these audiobooks you had to you had to literally get a catalog in the mail, which meant you had to write a letter to this whatever the name of the company was that did this, and they would send you a catalog of all the books that authors had had read and recorded to what? Directly to vinyl. This is a record player. And you would get a record like, I don't know, Electric Light Orchestra or a Pink Floyd album, except it would be Earl Nightingale reading you such things as The Strangest Secret and This I Believe, The Essence of Success, Lead the Field, The Secret Advantage, Communicate What You Think, As a Man Thinketh, The Strangest Secret for Succeeding in the World Today, The Classic Lead in the Field, The Direct Line, The Ultimate Self-Discipline Library, this man read everything, okay? He's like the guy swan of his time, right? He would go out and he'd find what he thought was the best books that supported his worldview about wealth, wealth building, ideas, how to structure your life, all that kind of stuff. The dude was tremendous, so I, I give it up to Earl Nightingale. I still listen to that guy, even though he is well and truly dead, six feet under. But uh, his legacy does live on. Just saying, that's going to do it for the morning roundup. Dad says jokes. My grandfather was terrible. But then I had my first child, and he became a great-grandfather. Get it? Get it? <laughs> That's a good one for Friday, I think. Um, a little bit more about the whole self-help book thing, just in general. You got to take all of this shit with a grain of salt, right? There are people that really believe that all they got to do is go read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and that somewhere in those pages are going to be the secret that pays off their house next year. That, no, no. And here's the reason that people think that. Back in the day of people like Earl Nightingale reading these books and Napoleon Hill, who interviewed Henry Ford for his book, um, the book uh, Richest Man in Babylon, you know what? What really wasn't prevalent during those ages? A high time preference. That's the difference between then and now. Somewhere along the way, high time preference became firmly installed in our day-to-day -day thought process. Whereas back in the day, it wasn't. In early America, and I'm talking all the way up, let's say all the way up until, let's go to World War II. 1941. Let's say 1940 was the last time that Americans as a whole had a predominance of low time preference as far as their futures, their children's futures, what they thought wealth was, all of it, all of it, all of it. It's all low time preference. Farmers didn't, they weren't putting 200 pounds of nitrogen on their field and seeing corn skyrocketing growth, right? And it very well may be that our high time preference as a virus that got sent through the system very well may have started in the Midwest cornfields because of fertilizer and that that permeated everything. Like I need that book from Amazon yesterday. 
Everything was yesterday. The only thing you need to give a shit about yesterday is that it, it was in fact the best damn time to plant, plant a tree, if not 20 years worth of yesterdays before that. And the next best time to plant a tree is right now. Right? And, and honestly, in the future, you're just, the time's going to slip away from you no matter what you do. Do something. Do something. And that's one of the reasons why when you do listen, if you are going to listen to quote unquote monetary self-help books, you got to take it with a grain of salt. But moreover, you've got to understand that none of these people wrote any pages in their books some formula that's going to make you in a, put you in a position to pay off your house tomorrow. It's not there. This is all low time preference. And that's why people get very disappointed with things like, you know, poor dad, rich, your rich dad, poor dad. Some people don't, but a lot of people do. They're like, well, shit, man. It's like, this is all stuff. This is all common sense. It's like, yeah, but we're not practicing it. Now I'm not suggesting go out and buy Robert Kiyosaki's book. I highly recommend just listening for free the narrated version of the richest man in Babylon, because that's where Napoleon Hill got his shit. And that's where Robert Kiyosaki got his shit. I guarantee it. I can see the threads of the logic through all those books. Richest man in Babylon came first. You might as well go to the source of the seed as my good friend, Texas Slim likes to say, screw the GMO, screw the, the hybridization that's gone out through the years where you've got only traces of the original left. No, no, no. Go right to the source, man. Go get, go grab the YouTube of richest man in Babylon. That's been narrated. You'll find it. It's four and a half hours. Clean the house. And in that way, you'll have done two things at once. You will have listened to one of the most it's actually one of the greatest books that I've read because it's done in a series of stories and those stories are like in ancient times. It's actually, it actually kind of transports you to, you know, the deserts of the middle of North Africa and the Middle East, you know, and you like, you have visions of caravans and camels and silk trade. It's a really good book. Even if you're not reading it for the message of monetary wealth and how to achieve it. And, and the fact that you're going to have to do this over time because it's not going to happen tomorrow. But even if you don't want that, it's like, I don't know, it's kind of like reading a, you know, a thousand and one Arabian nights, you know, or, well, I think the book is actually called Arabian nights in, in either event, it paints a picture in your head of like these faraway places and like, you know, ancient caravans and and trade routes and all kinds of shit and the walls of Babylon and ancient battles and shit. It's fucking good. And you get your house clean at the same time. So four and a half hours, you do two things at once. You get a, actually three things. You get a good story. And if you're listening closely, you'll understand how wealth works and the rules of money. And that if you violate those rules of money, money has a tendency to get pissed off at you and run away and you get a clean house. How can you lose? How can you lose? So do that over the weekend. Make it a goal over the weekend to listen to the four and a half hours of the richest man in Babylon. And you tell me what you think about it. What, what, what am I missing from these stories that you think I should know? Whether you know I'm missing anything or not, just say, hey, you might be missing this. Why don't you check this out? This is my interpretation of rule number two. I don't know. 
and send me a boostagram for it. Because you guys, when you send boostagrams, you have this really odd tendency to get me into the top 10. And I more than appreciate that because snuggling up next to Citadel Dispatch, No Agenda, Podcasting 2.0, The Survival Podcast, dude, you got no idea how that makes me feel. That's like chilling out with my favorite people vicariously. Because I've never been able to meet Marty Bent. I have been able to meet Matt O'Dell. I have been able to meet uh, Jack Spearco from the Survival Podcast and the Bitcoin Breakout Podcast. I've been able to meet them up close and personal, but not Marty Bent. I haven't been able to meet Adam Curry. You know, but it's weird because as as I listen to all these guys, I like I hear more and more from Texas Slim on different podcasts with people that I know and respect. I hear more and more from Adam Curry the same way. You know, and then I hear like, you know, Marty Bent and Adam Curry talking together. I hear Adam Curry and Texas Slim talking together. And it's almost like we're all forming a huge company, a huge conglomerate, a massive multinational company that we don't even know we're building and that we're all part of these separate departments, that we're all working for the same thing. And in so doing, we end up building a company and we don't even know we're building a company. People that are building companies are actually building departments inside of this other company. They don't even know it yet, like Unchained. The guys in Austin that used to be Unchained Capital and now I think their name is just Unchained because they went through a branding, a, a rebranding. You know, now I got, I got like, you know, uh, the people that Texas Slim talked to, C&K or C&K Cattle. You know, out there in uh, Luling, Texas, and like, you know, uh, uh, there's a uh, Angus breeder that does, you know, really good Angus genetics. You know, these guys, they're coming in. They're part of, they're part of the company. They don't even know it. We have a, a whole collection. We have an entire staff, and we have yet to have the first ever annual banquet where we all get to meet. And maybe we already have. Maybe it's... Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin 2020, 2022, 2023 over there in Miami. But somehow or another, that just doesn't seem to fit what I'm thinking in my mind. But as we all move forward together, we're going to be closer and closer together. We're going to get to know each other better and better. And I get the feeling that some like it, it's like a, the compression of a nuclear core or like a plutonium core or uranium core in a warhead that as you squeeze it closer and closer together, critical mass is achieved and the bomb goes off. And the next thing you know, instead of abject destruction in its wake, the Bitcoin company that still is unanswered, that cannot answer to any centralized authority because of the way it's structured is left over out of the mushroom cloud. And we're all its employees. We're all coworkers. I've never seen anything like this. And it puts a smile on my face every single time I think about it. I want you to think about it too, and I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.